I mean, I think the first hurdle to get over is that most people think they're good listeners when they're not. They'll look at me and they go, I've got two ears. What's your problem? But it's the difference between hearing and listening. And I use a very simple thought, which is we hear from, we listen to. Hearing is passive. It's about keeping us safe. Listening, on the other hand, I have to intend to listen. If I wasn't listening to the people I was referring to, I would not have noticed what happened. Because I noticed the subtle shift. There was something that happened. And it could have been I was picking out visually, I could have picking out hearing, or even just a sense that something wasn't quite right. So once that's happened, they say, ah, okay, so maybe I don't listen very well. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. You know, this podcast is all about communication, and an essential aspect of good communication is listening. I believe it's a lost art in this fast-paced world, and that's why I'm especially excited to have as my very special guest someone who's commonly known as a listener. Colin Smith is one of the UK's foremost listening skills specialists. He works with individuals as well as teams within organizations who want to be heard, think smarter, and transform their business and personal relationships through active listening. He has an innate ability to actively listen to people, enabling them to articulate their creative ideas, address their personal concerns, express their feelings more easily, and to achieve their personal, professional, and life goals. Having had a varied and successful career in consultancy, business development, IT, and customer support across many sectors, Colin realized that much of his success was due to his listening and connecting abilities. This led him to develop a series of programs to develop these skills in others, the importance of which organizations are now waking up to. His inquisitive and curious mind leads him to explore unusual, thought-provoking, yet grounded observation and alternative approaches to business, people, systems, change, and innovations. Well, welcome, Colin. This is a great topic. It fits perfectly into our podcast, and so I'm really happy to have you here today. Yeah, thank you, Tony. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start off all the podcasts because I think it's always so important for the listeners to get to know the person who is speaking on a personal level. And in fact, uh, we had just talked about a TED Talk that I'm giving coming up. It'll probably be done by the time this podcast airs. But that TED Talk's all about being a genuine person and why it's so important for doctors and patients to be relatable. So I think uh, let's start off with who's Colin and how did you become the listener and your journey and, and how you got here to this moment, which is the peak of your career to be on my podcast. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
I think that's, that's a fair question, actually. I often think about it is that, bizarrely, I'm in the third half of my life. And in the first half of the three halves, I was working in IT, understanding how computers worked and how they connected. In the second half, it was more about working with people, understanding how they worked and how they connected. And in the third half, which has been really probably the last 10 or so years, has been more about really connecting people and connecting people with a difference and making a difference. And if I look at that latter part, the challenge for me has been finding myself. And I've been blessed, and I, I see that really honestly, about having two, going, going through two divorces. So I've got two children, one from each, but each of those has been a move on but away from, if you like, to becoming more about who I really am. And that's why I look at this as the third half, because what I'm now doing is embodying more about who I am. And the idea I started when I set my own business up as Dexterity Solutions was about connecting people who make a difference. And it still wasn't quite right, so I knew there were some iterations going on from there. And I looked at the idea of positive deviance, and these are people who see the world differently. But actually, these people are often introvert. They have a bigger vision than themselves, but they don't shout about it. But they're actually transformational change people. So could I find a way of getting the CEOs of organizations to understand and value these people more than they are now, and also be a voice for those positive deviants who aren't really sharing themselves particularly well? So that got me thinking, and it's about seeing the world differently. So often when I talk about listening, I see that I'm actually pushing back against everything that's going the other way. So we're looking at more texting, more messaging, more email, more curating who I'd like to be rather than being someone real in front of someone. So in this conversation, for example, if I mess up, I've got to recover from it. If I say something that you may not appreciate, I've got to recover from it rather than what is it I need to create about myself that Tony will like. And therefore, I start putting on a facade and not being who I am. And that's hard work. So I, I worked with that for a while. And then I came up with an idea which I call disruptive dialogue. And if I explain to you that it's two, three hours with me, but there's no agenda, no perceived outcome, and I want paying for it. It's a real hard sell that you're going to have that. So that didn't last very long. And then over lunch one day, we came up with the idea and we were talking about it. And she said, one of the things you do really well is listening. And then we thought, well, what about the listening coach? And the idea is like, listening coach has a fixing part of it. And I thought, well, maybe the listener, which is not about fixing, it is about listening. And that was where it was born. And What's lovely is that people send me things. I've had one recently from someone who I knew probably about eight years ago. I haven't spoken to him since. And he'd found an article on listening. And he saw it, thought of me, and just sent me an email. That's fantastic. But listening is a lost art. I mentioned it in the introduction. And as you mentioned, there's this fast-paced world of tech and emails. And people don't generally listen. I, I heard someone say once, you know, people listen to respond, not to really hear. And I find myself doing that ever since I heard that phrase. 
especially in medicine, there's a great book, famous book called How Doctors Think. And in that book, the author talks about exactly that, that while a patient is responding and we're trained in thinking in algorithms, yes, no, yes, no, we might as well be computers. And how, because we're really not listening, how many medical errors and problems that happen in misdiagnoses. So why do you think that, and is it getting worse? Why do you think that people are having more and more trouble listening? Yeah, I think the point you made, and I was alluding to it earlier, is that we're getting caught up on screens and it's easier to be someone we're not. But maybe if you start to look underneath that, there's a sense of I'm not enough as I am. So the more we can curate my image in anticipation of this is what the recipient might want, I've done that. Now, now I'm going to be liked more. I'm going to be accepted more. I'm going to get more likes and all those sorts of things. But if I look at it the other side, and it's interesting, you referred to a particular book, there's a piece of research done where they interviewed or were watching doctors when they're receiving not a new patient, necessarily a new patient, but a new condition. And what they found is that three out of four doctors interrupt the patient before they finish speaking. So they've gone through your algorithm, yes, tick, tick, that, yep, no, right, fine, here's the answer. And what they found is that those three out of four interrupt their patient before they finish speaking. On average, it's 18 seconds. And for me, I have a sense that when that happens, I haven't finished speaking and you're already starting to uh, produce the prescription. So I get it and I, I go, okay. And I get to the door and I stop and I say, oh, just one other thing. And I finish and the doctor says, come back here, let me have that prescription, tears it up, and then writes a new one. But I also think they're missing. And I think one of the things I've heard with doctors is they're asked, really listen to your patient because they will tell you what's really going on. But also the other bit that's in that is how much confidence do I have in what the doctor's given me to take if he or she hasn't listened to me well enough? I don't feel heard. I don't matter. I don't feel valued. And that is, for me, is that spiral down, which is the last thing that doctors want. But when I talk about that, I also say to people in the audience, are you an 18-second father, an 18-second manager, an 18-second leader? And you can see people going, yeah, I am. So when people come to me with a problem, I listen to them for a short while. I know the answer. Here it is. Get it. Done. But so many people, when I do my workshops, we do a little bit on conflict resolution, which I'd like to hear your opinion on also. But sometimes you'll be dealing with a complaint. There'll be an unhappy patient. There'll be an unhappy customer. And we'll do this little exercise. And I'll say, what's the patient really saying? So the patient may be complaining in the hospital about the food or a routine procedure with no risks, maybe not wanting to sign the consent form. And we're going, why would this mother or this patient not want to sign? And many times what the patient's really saying, I just want a little control. I tried to teach during conflict resolution to not only listen to the words, but also listen to the nonverbal cues. Now, this is an audio only podcast, but It's very important that I'm seeing you right now on screen because it's really difficult to interact with somebody when you can't see their facial expressions and 70 to 80% of language is nonverbal. 
So I guess there's a question in there somewhere, but can you comment on that uh, about the nonverbal and, and maybe just let's start off with a bang and just how can I be a better listener? I will answer that question. There's a bit which you alluded to is a question just before, before okay. that, in that, which is the nonverbal cues. Mm-hmm. And this has happened two or three times that during a conversation, um, where we're just really exchanging ideas, views, helping each other think better, things like that. But I've noticed a subtle shift in perhaps their voice, perhaps the tone, perhaps their facial expression, maybe their eyes or something. And I've said, are you okay? And they've gone, yeah, I'm fine. And they said, it's okay. I just thought there might have been something that shifted then. And they go, well, actually, you're right. Yeah, something you said triggered something, or when you were talking, it brought something up for me, which I find particularly upsetting. And when it happens in a one-to-one, you can let the conversation go to that place if they want. If it's in a smaller group, then it's a little bit harder. But just noticing, even over Zoom, you can still notice these subtle things. I would say from the point of view of being a better listener, I mean, I think the first hurdle to get over is that most people think they're good listeners when they're not. You know, they'll look at me and they go, I've got two ears. What's your problem? But it's the difference between hearing and listening. And I use a very simple thought, which is we hear from, we listen to. So hearing is passive. It's about keeping us safe. Listening, on the other hand, I have to intend to listen. If I wasn't listening to the people I was referring to, I would not have noticed what happened because I noticed the subtle shift. There was something that happened and it could have been I was picking up visually, I could have picking up hearing or even just a sense that something wasn't quite right. So once that's happened, they said, ah, okay, so maybe I don't listen very well. So we also, we interrupt a lot. In fact, probably far too much. And Nancy Klein with her amazing work called Time to Think would actually say that actually she says that interrupting is an assault on the other person. And when I get people to do a non-listening exercise where the speaker is sharing something that's important, then the listener starts off being interested and then gradually just drops off the conversation, starts to look away, looks at their watch, and it goes on like that until effectively they disconnect and ask people what that's like. And for the speaker, they say, I start to think stupid. I don't get my thoughts. My thoughts start disappearing. And I don't understand because I'm thinking, why have they stopped listening to me? Why does he keep looking at his watch? Why has he turned away from me? I think it's my fault. Is it that I'm not interesting? I don't matter. My words are not important. All of these things. But also, interestingly, for the listener, they say, it was really difficult to do. And this is an exercise. It was difficult to do because I was interested in them, but I also thought it was rude. And I say, but we do this all the time. You know, so if I'm talking to you and my phone goes and I go, oh, you don't mind, do you? And I pick my phone up. How would that work? If you did it on your TED talk, you know, your phone rings and you pick it up and you start talking. (laughs) You don't mind, do you? Okay, thanks. People would, what is going on? So it's rude, but we do it. So, learning not to interrupt as much as we possibly can. 
you know, there are going to be times where I've got one minute, I need to get this sorted, I need an answer in it. That's slightly different, but in the main, if we don't. We also think at different speeds. So I can talk at around 125, 150 words a minute, but you can process as a listener about three times as much, 450 words. So there's a gap. So how do I fill that gap? What usually happens, we get taken off somewhere else. I start thinking about where I'm going to go later. What about dinner? What am I going to get at the grocery store, etc.? Rather than focusing more on the person that's speaking. So what's going on for them? How am I feeling? What's going on? Those sorts of things. But it's also true the other way, that I also am thinking at 450 words or more a minute, but I can only get 125 words out. So the moment you give me the chance, so you pause as you are doing. So when I stop, because I'm thinking, you're not interrupting me. You're not jumping on my, at the end, in that pause. So my thinking continues. You might repeat by asking me the question again, or you might say, and what more? But the flow of my answers keeps coming. And in that pause in my thinking, I get the chance for the second wave of thinking to come through and the third wave of thinking. And you can ask that and what more question five, six, seven times. And they'll only often they say, yeah, I think you asked it twice. So I'm settling. I'm thinking better. The quality of it is improving. Also, the relationship is changing too. I'm starting to like you more. I'm starting to trust you more. I'm feeling more comfortable with you. I'm willing to open up to you a little bit more. As a patient, there's something like, I probably wouldn't say it to you normally because I'm not sure it's important. But what I've noticed is this and this. And you think, oh my goodness, how valuable was that piece of information for me? Or in a sales role, when you do it, and the customer said, I don't normally tell people this, but this is going on in the company. And it's really worrying me that for me, there seems to be some disagreement within the board members, and I'm beginning to feel more and more isolated. So we share more with each other, and we can hear more. You are talking about people not paying attention and going on their phones and you have two children. I have three adult children. In order to get to be an adult, they had to go through their teenage years. And I remember many conversations where speaking to my kids could be about anything. And right in the middle of the sentence, what do the teenagers do? They pick the phone up and they start texting. Yeah. And what is astonishing to this generation, and I'm not putting them down at all, it's just different, is that when I would call them out on it, they had no idea why that would be so insulting to me. Yeah, And I'd say to my child, dad's talking to you. We're having a conversation and you're in the phone. And they go, yeah, but I'm listening, dad. And so we have a lot of conversations about eye contact because I yeah. think that's preparing them for business. And I think, and I'd like you to comment on that, but when you're making eye contact with someone, it's awfully hard. For me, I use that as a way to stop you from looking down because if I'm looking straight into your eyes while you're listening or while I'm speaking, you feel a little especially rude if you break that eye contact now. For me, I have a, a phrase going away to think. So this is me going away to think. And if I come back to you and you're looking somewhere else or at your watch, it interrupts my thinking. Why is he doing that? And it's not a staring contest. Yeah, it's sort of light, but 
for them, it's a knowing that you're there with them. And I've also got a sense that we're moving more from a doing to society to a being with society. I'm not at you, I'm with you. And imagine that in the medical environment. You know, so when you're arriving to your patient, they know that you're going to be with them. It feels like you're with me, not uh, doing to me. And you're absolutely right, I believe, with the bureaucracy and the paperwork they have to do, I bet it can feel like that. So I, I was going to ask you a question relating to what you were saying with your children when they pick up the phone, or someone is doing something similar while you're talking to them. How does that feel for you at that moment, if you can just put yourself into that position? What is that like for you? What does it feel like? Well, it, I believe it makes me feel like I don't matter, that what I'm saying is not important, and that I can't be that interesting if halfway through my sentence, you decided to answer a tweet. And, you know, sometimes my kids, you know, we'll, we'll be having a discussion about politics or history, and sometimes they'll go right to their phone. And what I realized in many instances, they're actually fact-checking yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And my wife brought it out because my youngest one is very bright and he they're all bright, but he's into history and I'll say something and he'll go right to his phone. And my wife brought it up. She said, he's fact checking you. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is fine. But if you're going to do that, and I say this to doctors all the time, multitasking, as we know, is a myth. There's a book called The Myth of Multitasking, which yeah. says that your brain can't really do two things at one time. But sometimes you, as a physician, or maybe you have to look something up, maybe you're having a meeting, a business meeting, and something comes up and you need to check something. I think it's important to say to your patient, I'm just going to look up your lab right now, because we assume the patient thinks that knows that's what we're doing. But the patient may think, you know, he's looking for a tea time. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. So it's all about communication. And if you can't listen, then you certainly can't communicate. And you're right about the doctors interrupting. It's that algorithm. And I'm not sure how to get away from that because the medical schools are designed right now to still teach that. Yeah. You know, do you have pain in your arm? Yes, no. Do you move down? Yes, no. It doesn't leave any room for a narrative. Yeah. And we know that when there is a narrative, medical errors go down, malpractice goes down because you're listening. And, you know, you, as you said, a lot of times people do leave the doctor's office feeling that their questions aren't answered. We did a, an internet survey about two years ago. I think it was about 300 patients that we surveyed and 73% of them said that they frequently left the doctor's office feeling rushed without their questions answered. Yeah frequently that's huge and so that's huge yeah. and you know and sometimes it's out of a misguided respect my father I'll, I'll give him a list of things to do when he goes to see his physicians ask him about your blood pressure ask him about yeah. your cholesterol after he's done i'll call him what did the doctor say did you ask him this no I, you know he seemed rushed i didn't want to bother him yeah. <laughs> you know? so it's about taking control of your own health care and and in the boardroom Right now, I think we have a listening crisis looking at the politics in the United States and in yeah. the UK and everywhere else. And no one is listening to each of us. If you don't agree with me, you're automatically wrong. Yep. And is it a generation thing? Is it, do you think it's getting worse or better? I think I asked you this already, but if it's getting worse, why do you think that is? Is it the <sighs> technology? 
my gut feel is it, it is more about technology. I think we are rushed. We're trying to do more than we can. So we're stressed. We're probably more self-serving than we ever used to be. There's less respect for each other. We're all fighting our own fight. And the downside is, you know, we're seeing things that are sort of societal level about mental health, suicide, loneliness, and things like this. And it's kind of forcing us down that road of, I'll look after myself. If I can do that, that'll be enough. That's all I've got the capacity for. It is concerning. And I genuinely think there is a crisis. Just going back to when you answered the question I posed you about how it felt. You're a grown man. You're an intelligent man. You're a professional man. And it still was like that for you. And Oprah was saying that when she has people that she interviews, and it could be presidents, it could be mom and dads, people in prison, these sorts of things. She said pretty much every single one of them, when we finished, leans over and said, is that okay? Is that all right? Whatever it is, we all need that reassurance that we matter. All right. And so her intention when she's interviewing people is to validate them. And if all doctors did, if all managers did, was to validate the patient, the, their team members, their colleagues, these little things that if we did them a little bit would make a big difference. Absolutely. It sounds simple, but not as easy. I wish you can come down to Washington, D.C. and, and fix this. Uh, but last time we spoke, you mentioned something called Survive, Dive, and Thrive. Can you expand on that and tell us what that's all about? Oh, thank you. Yes. It's the way I've used three words to describe the three different dimensions of the work that I do. And the first one is referred to as survive. And it is, I need to be heard. So what I'm here for now with you is to listen fully, empathically, actively, deeply to you, to not judge, to see you as an equal, to not interrupt, to give you that space so that you feel heard, you feel validated, as we said earlier. The second one, which is about what I call dive, is what I found is that the quality of my listening can increase the quality and depth of your thinking. All too often, we give people the answer. Rarely, not always, obviously, not all the time. So what do you think? Because even in answer to that question, you're respecting them. I want to know what your answer is. I'm interested in the answer because your answer matters. You know, so it might be that when the doctors ask them a question, my thoughts, it could be this. What do you think? Like, actually, no, that doesn't feel right for me for whatever reason. And sometimes when we're asking these questions, it encourages another level of thinking. And we talked about the waves of thinking. And so the quality of my listening increases the quality of your thinking. And then the third, which is what I call thrive, is more about teaching people the power of listening. And some say it's a superpower. And yeah. there's been examples, two in particular. One is the don't fix it. And I was coaching a young lad, and interesting, so I'm not sure it's an age thing, probably in his early 20s, got a girlfriend, lives with her. And the conclusion he came from at the end of one of our sessions was that for the next two weeks, between now and the next one, he said, I'm going to do everything I can to not fix the problem. So I'm not offering a fix or a solution. 
And he wrote to me about three days later, said, I can't tell you how different the relationship is now. And he said, mm. it does genuinely feel like a superpower. And all I've done is not try and fix. I've just listened. And the last time he said, his girlfriend turned around to him and said, thank you for listening. And it's amazing. And the, 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 the second one, this has happened in a, a series of workshops that I'm running with different groups. And it's called the three second pause. So wait three seconds after the person has finished speaking. Not all the time, because it can be a bit contrived. But just keep doing it and notice what happens. They keep talking. They tell you more. And they're loving it, absolutely loving it. I love what you said about what do you think? Again, just relating that back to what I do. We know that one of the biggest problems with medicine is that it requires trust between a doctor and a patient. I always thought now that we have Google and there's a lot of misinformation out there that if you don't, and this has been proven, if you don't trust your doctor, you're unlikely to finish your medicine. You're unlikely to follow up. Agreed. And so trust is really important. And if I said, Colin, I think it's your hamstring. What do you think? And you're thinking there's no way that it's my hamstring. It's my back. Then when I prescribe something for your hamstring, you're going to leave there going, Dr. Orsini's crazy. I don't trust him. He's not going to take it. So I think that's fantastic advice for any person who's a doctor or a nurse out there in healthcare. Ask him what they think, because if they're too polite to tell you, I think you're wrong, then they're just going to leave there and they're not going to listen to you anyway. And then medicine breaks down. So medicine, and I believe this with all my heart, and soul, but medicine and life is all about trust. If I don't yeah. trust you, if we're on the board together, right, in business, yep. and you and I don't trust each other, we're not going very far, are we? Totally. As you listen more, the level of trust goes up, as long as your intention is good. So if as a doctor or as a board member, right, okay, I'm learning this listening malarkey to manipulate people into believing me. Hmm. Rest assured, people will pick up your intention and they'll go, ah, he's saying all the right things, but it doesn't feel right. There's something else. There's a hidden agenda. When I think about the boardroom, I think about a bunch of men and women interrupting each other, (laughs) arguing, giving their opinions, not listening. And in many cases, there's the man or woman who's sitting in the corner and not saying anything. I, f- I feel like that's you. And then in the end, someone says, Colin, you've been awfully quiet. What do you think? And then lets out three or four sentences and everybody goes, wow, he's really smart. When yeah. probably you might not be the smartest person in the room. You were just the only one listening. Yeah. And that's so important. But all too often, the person doesn't get asked. Mm. They're not invited into the conversation at the beginning. So Nancy Klein again talks about circle about inviting everyone into the conversation at the start, sharing something that's valuable for them or they've done well or on their project or something's personally has happened. But it gives everyone a chance to speak. And now we're all in in the conversation. And recognizing that there's no inequality, just because you speak more doesn't mean your voice has more authority, more power, etc. So giving everyone the chance and also the chance that they can pass. If I've got nothing to say on this subject, I can pass. But otherwise, I'm in the round with it. And I love that. One of my first 
episodes uh, interviews was with someone called uh, Kathy Caprino. Okay. She was in the first and Kathy is a coach and executive coach for women and teaches them how to empower themselves. She's an incredible person. She's a Forbes writer, really very impressive. And, and she talked about that, that many women in the executive boardroom are quiet. They're really good listeners, but many of them leave without being called on yeah. and never imparting their wisdom on the group. And so Kathy helps them with the process of how to listen, give your statement and be heard without being offensive. And and so you were discussing sometimes people don't ever call on you. It brought to mind Kathy's great interview. And so I definitely recommend that. I think it was like one of our first or second interviews. So, wow, this has been really informational, but also inspirational. You're not going to get out of here, though, without the (laughs) toughest question that I ask. (laughs) So everyone gets this question. What is the most difficult conversation that you've had to take part in? And can you give us some advice on how you navigated through that conversation in your respect? It would be by listening and responding. And you can say type of conversation or you can be specific. Yeah. Yeah, I like the question. It would be very easy for me to just come up with an answer, but I'd let that sit, you know, because I was thinking about the answer. And then I thought, you know, all conversations can be difficult. So if you're someone who's not very good socially, even just going to a pub and having a conversation is difficult. So I thought, so what is it that makes conversations difficult or uncomfortable? And what I came to is this idea that it doesn't feel safe. So safety is a really important element. And part of some of the workshops I'm running, I asked them about psychological safety. And there's a whole raft of work has been done on psychological safety. And part of it is one or two things I can do to make the environment I'm in or the space I'm in or the conversation I'm in much safer or a little bit safer such that it will encourage the other person to speak. And a simple one might be when the CEO comes in or perhaps a senior physician and says, we've got this particular problem. This is what I think. What do you think? Now, the majority of them will go, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Rather than saying, we've got this real problem. I'm curious to know what you people think. Because good CEOs, good physicians will acknowledge an answer. If they decide, I mean, listen to everyone, the answer they picked was the one they were coming with. I don't need to have that as my answer. I can let them have that as their answer. And we're going with Joe's answer. So the little things that we can do, and the heart of it for me is about listening. So the more we listen, the more trust, the safer the environment is, obviously, unless it's got to be good intention. But the more trust there is, the safer it is, the more likely is that the conversations are going to get better. So if I've got some things I want to say to you and it doesn't feel safe, I'm not going to say them. But if you're encouraging me or it's becoming more and more of a safe environment for me to do that, and I might say, you know, Tony, there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up with you. And you go, what's that then? Uh, (laughs) So immediately I'm trying to backtrack now. I've got two things now I need to tell you. And how am I going to, mitigate what I say in a way that you'll find it acceptable. But if I start to share, you don't interrupt. You say, oh my gosh, I hadn't realized. Tell me more. I'm now interested. And you go, really, thank you for that. That's been really helpful. And even just those few things 
might encourage me to tell you some more. Or next time I can tell you some more. Or when I speak to someone else and they say, I've been asked to come and see Tony. And I go, don't worry. You will listen. Thank you. So the quality of my thinking improves because I'm relaxed. And you know all of the science behind it, the biology behind it. I'm now thinking because I'm relaxed. So it's much easier. So I can think because it's not stressed. I'm not worried that if I say something wrong, I could be fired. How many times in organizations we say we've got no blame culture, and yet the moment that somebody steps up or steps out, we're not the heads of. Oh, won't be doing that again. And other people go, well, I won't be doing that myself. And then we end up with the, the Enron situations, the, the Challenger situation, the, the Hubble telescope, all of these different things because people were frightened to speak up and speak out. So the more, I love that. Yeah. It's all about safety and how many CEOs, it seems like every CEO goes, I have an open door policy, yeah. but you know, that's not true. The door is open, yeah. but don't walk through it. Yeah. But there are more and more companies we've had. Shabad McHale on, Claude Silver, James Orsini talking about changes in culture in the boardroom and in the business. And I think that there is a movement towards not only talking the talk, yeah. but walking the walk. And I'm optimistic about that. In, and I think that our young people, although sometimes they have a reputation that may or may not be good, they are really driving this culture change Agreed. and are stepping up and saying, I don't want to be treated like that again. I would add to that whole culture of safety. And there's a concept in my book that I call, it's hard to fire your best friend. And that's uh, something that my mother used to tell me. And what it means is that if you are a relatable person, if you really want people to feel safe, then be a regular guy, be a regular girl. The CEO who walks in the room or the physician who's in charge who walks in the room and and ask somebody about their children or talks about the baseball game last night, they're real people and, yeah. and you feel safe immediately. Okay. So I love that advice. This has been nothing but advice, Colin. This has been great. And I promise my audience every week that they'll be inspired and you've done that and you've certainly really helped us with our communication skills. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for being so gracious and sharing all your wisdom with us. This has been really great. Thank you. Really enjoyed my time with you. And thank you for the questions and for uh, making me feel safe and welcome. Really thank you. It. And uh, I hope we can keep in touch and be friends. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please go ahead and hit follow. Apple now went from subscribe to follow. But we're also available on different podcast platforms such as Spotify, Amazon, and Google Play. If you want more information about the Orsini Way and what we do, you can visit my website at theorsiniway.com. Colin, how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way? The best is the website, which is Dexterity Solutions, all one word, dexteritysolutions.co.uk. Great. And I think if you are a business or anyone who really wants to use Colin services, I would highly recommend them. This has been one of the best 45 minutes of learning that we've had. Thanks again, Colin. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.